Psalm 11. To the choir master of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we learn David's song in the face of great distress, in the face of great national corruption, as we learn to sing with him about the Lord being our refuge, we pray that your spirit would be at work in applying your word written by David but superintended at the hands of your, at the, <clears throat> at the word of your Holy Spirit, we pray that we would be mindful that this is your word and that the Lord, <clears throat> that you look to those who tremble at your word. I pray that we would. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to just start um, kind of a little bit out of the box just by looking right at the text and then sort of come to some introductory matters after we do. But, but look with me at the, the heading. As you guys know and as the guys have been telling you all summer, these little superscriptions you get, not the one in big black bold ink above your like chapter 11, verse 1, but the little superscripts you get where it says, like, the, to the choir master of David. Those are a part of the original text. And here's what we know about the context of this psalm. It's supposed to be sung or led by the choir master and sung. It is a prayer. It is a song that they sing. But then we also know it's written by David. We don't have any other location for this song other than that. Scholars argue about whether or not David wrote this when he was being pursued by Saul or when he was being pursued by Absalom, his son. Either way, David wrote this psalm in the midst of time of trouble, in the midst of when things looked bad all around, in the midst of time when there was no justice being served in his nation. That's when he wrote this psalm. That's what we know. And look at what he says right off the get-go, verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. The Lord is my refuge. We've been talking about that a lot in the Psalms that we've been in. The Lord is our refuge. He's our hiding place. He is the, the if you will, the cleft in the rock where I hide from the storm. I, I find safety in him. The Lord is my refuge. Now notice what he says. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul? Now who's, and then you're gonna get quote marks. Quotes, flee like a bird to your mountain. 
And then notice the quotes end or close at the end of verse 3. What can the righteous do? End of the quotes. In other words, from the beginning of those quote marks, flee like a bird to your mountain, to the end of those quote marks, the end of verse 3, what can the righteous do? That whole saying, that whole section is something that someone is saying to David. David's repeating what some other person is saying to him. But all we know is that person is you. How can you say to my soul? So who's, who's the you saying this to David? Because he's wondering, how can you say this stuff between verse 1 and verse 3? How can you say that to my soul? The Lord is my refuge. How can you say this to me? Now scholars argue, are these his enemies? Or are these his, if you will, Christian friends? And I think in context, it seems to be that these may be his well-meaning Christian friends. Say, are they Christians? Yes, they believed in Christ in the Old Testament. So his well-meaning Christian friends are saying to him these things. What are they saying to him? I think that's what's happening. What are they saying to him? Flee like a bird to your mountain. In other words, David, go hide. Get out of here. Get out of here. Go to the mountains and hide. Now, now why are they saying it? For behold, verse 2, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted the arrow, their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. In other words, David, get out of here, go to the mountain and flee and hide because the wicked have their bows bent. The arrow is pointed at your heart. They are hiding out in dark places. They are waiting to kill you. And they're going to get it. They're going to get their way. Get out. Now look at what verse 3 says. They follow up, most likely his friends, if the foundations are destroyed. In other words, in the context of this nation, if justice is completely undermined, if there is no sure footing in your nation of safety or security for a believer, for a righteous man, if that's gone, what can the righteous do? And the implied answer is, they can't do anything. Can't do anything. David, there's no hope for you in our nation now. All your enemies surround you. Justice has been undermined. Either Saul or Absalom is desiring to have you. Your enemies have their bows bent. Their arrows are pointed at your heart. You're a goner. Get out now. Flee. Go. And what's interesting is his friends are saying to him, all is lost for you, David. All is lost. Justice is absent. Your enemies are closing in. Run to an idol. Find your hope in idolatry. You say, now how do I know that they're pointing him to idols for refuge? Sounds like they're just saying, go and hide in a mountain. Why do I say they're pointing to idols for refuge? Flee to the mountain and find your hiding place there. Be like a bird. Get, go into the mountain. Find it. How do I know that's an idolatrous offer? Because Habakkuk, a prophet of the Lord, comments on Psalm 11. He comments on it. Comments on Psalm 11. Look, look with, with me, if you will, at Habakkuk. He picks it up. 
in his own context in Habakkuk chapter 2, commenting really on Psalm 11.4, because Jesus, or, excuse me, David's response to taking refuge in the Lord and, and there saying, go flee to idols, David's response is, the Lord is in his holy temple, verse 4 of Psalm 11. The Lord's in his holy temple. And Habakkuk, picking up on Psalm 11.4, says really in verse, if we turn to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 18, the Israelites, if you will, the people at this time are looking to idols. And verse 18, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. See, idols lie to you, don't they? He's asking this question. You're making statues and then looking to it for, for help? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. They can't speak. They can't help you. You're trusting in your own creation. Now you might say, but we don't make statues. We don't make statues and bow down to them. We might not. I've seen that in the world. That's not a big American tendency, but we do. We do flee to human things. We do flee to created things for refuge rather than to the Lord. We do all the time. Look what he goes on to say. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath at all in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. That's a reference to Psalm 11.4. In other words, Habakkuk is looking at this situation and saying, you're turning to idols just like David's enemies or David's friends, we're not sure, encourage David to do. But David knew the Lord was in his holy temple. Do you? The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. See, David says in Psalm 11:1, in the Lord I take refuge. He finds refuge in the Lord in the midst of danger and despair. That's where he finds it. He doesn't need idolatrous solutions. That's why he says, in the Lord I take refuge. How how can you say to my soul to look to other things for refuge? How can you say that to me? Christians, I mean, you stop and consider when your friends come to you with their woes in life, do you point them to their refuge in the Lord or do you point them to refuge in and idolatrous solutions. Oh, it, it'll all work out. Will it? Things will get better. Will they? It'll turn around. Just trust the Lord. It'll turn around. Is that true? David doesn't need idolatrous solutions. That's what he says. I don't need them. They're of no help to me. How can you suggest them to my soul? The Lord is my refuge. The question I struggled with is, how how does David do this? I wasn't scheduled to preach today. I don't know if you know that. Early June, um, I was reading through the Psalms. I was reading through the Psalms that we were preaching this summer, studying through them, just trying to prepare myself for them. Plus, I had nothing to do. And... uh, because I wasn't preaching. So I thought, I'm going to read through these and study them and prepare my heart for them. And I was in the midst of some things you guys have heard about and I'll get to in a minute, myself wrestling through lots of questions. 
And um, as I was reading this psalm, I just texted Jason and Russell. I think Russell was scheduled to preach today. And I texted him and said, can I preach Psalm 11? I, I need to preach Psalm 11 because it speaks to my heart right now and what I'm going through. Um, because I need to understand how David could do this. I need to be able to find refuge in the Lord for my soul. I need to really answer the question, how does David rest so well in the safety of the Lord? See, we need to be able to find refuge in the Lord, don't we? We need it. And I've known, like I said, similar trouble. I, I haven't been in the same existential trouble David was. In other words, no one was chasing me around with bows and arrows. But I have felt the sting of injustice. And I have seen the foundations crumble. I still remember the day before a school board vote, and I've almost never talked about the school board in here, but I'm going to this morning. I still remember the day before the school board vote on several new laws from the LGBTQ agenda. It's probably one of the most discouraging days in the 12 years I've spent on the board. Um, certainly one of the most discouraging days um, in life in many ways. When I was being called by more than one board member and administrator and being asked not to even attend the board meeting the next day. Now, mind you, I'm elected representative to a school board being called by administrators and board members asking me not even to attend a meeting. I was told it's inevitable. It's inevitable, Chad. The administration will support the new laws in California. The board will adopt the new laws into policy. It's inevitable. Don't come. Your presence at the meeting will only serve to cause a mess. We scheduled it early on a Thursday morning when no one will come, no media will show up, and if you come and cause a ruckus, all it's going to do is make the whole community know this has happened. Imagine the discouragement of that. For me, I thought, what in the world am I even doing? I was distressed, um, deeply disappointed. I, I, I've seen so much wickedness behind the scenes for so many years. I have fought so many battles for the sake of our kids only to wake up that day when the vote happened to realize that I've been applying paint to a house built on sand. I fought and fought, but the foundations were destroyed long ago. The foundations were destroyed long ago, and I was too naive to admit it. I remember the next board meeting. It was filled with people from across the community. Some of you came. Even people from other communities. I remember sitting, listening to men dressed like women, lesbian mothers with transgender children, making their case for a new kind of moral calculus to rule in our school district. A morality built upon a godless, and I want you to hear this because it's important, and therefore dehumanizing 
foundation that was laid long ago. When we reduce people to their sexual urges, we have dehumanized them. Christians ought not to even throw around the word that person's a homosexual, that person's a heterosexual in that way. We ought to say maybe that person's same-sex attracted, but let's not tag their identity and reduce them to that, to their sexual impulses and urges. It's dehumanizing. But that foundation was laid long ago, folks. I also listened to hours of testimony from Christians and other religious folk fighting for the district to reverse itself and save their children from the broken house built upon the shifting sands of a godless culture. I received emails and calls from all over the United States. All over the United States. I uh, had people making their appeals. Some were appealing to me, telling me I need to go to prison or that someone needed to kill me or my wife or my kids. I pretty much got those emails on a daily basis. I got some from people telling me you've got to keep fighting. If I've gone to the store or out into the public any day in the last two months, I'm inevitably approached about this. I was approached three times yesterday just trying to drop my daughter off to see a play. We've, we've all watched, we've all watched as our nation has become deeply divided. We've all watched it, haven't we? We've seen it. We've also watched as our country celebrates the idols of individual autonomy and happiness, completely oblivious to the conditions necessary to bring about either. The global sexual revolution has taken hold in America. Love has been redefined to sentiment. Liberty has been redefined to libertinism, i.e. the freedom to do whatever makes you happy. And the foundation has been destroyed and the sexual revolution will, I want you to hear this, will now only grow in power. Am I discouraging you? Did you know that there are now on record at least 55 genders? Did you even know that was possible? We've become really bad at math. At least 55 genders on record. At least. Last time I heard, just I think yesterday I read something that said it's now over 60. I don't even, I don't even know what they could all possibly be. I've been told that I'm a certain gender I never even heard of. Did you know that if you're opposite sex attracted your whole life, you're not a heterosexual anymore? You're a cis heterosexual, C-I-S hyphen heterosexual. Do you know that? Because there is no such thing as an actual heterosexual. We'll get to that in a minute. The foundation has been destroyed and the sexual revolution is going to grow in power. The premier LGBTQ thinker in the country right now is a lesbian professor at Cal Berkeley. And she's really leading the day on transgenderism philosophically. And she actually argues there's no gender at all. That gender is all a fantasy, a phantasma, she calls it, a social construct. And that's why the word queer has made a comeback. Have you guys noticed that? Queer used to be a word you didn't say. It was an insult. But now queer has made a comeback as a word. Why? 
Because there is no longer any male or female, therefore there isn't really any heterosexual or homosexual. So if you want to deny the idea that there's even a possibility of male and female, heterosexual or homosexual, then you embrace the word queer. Which means you think that gender distinctions are a fantasy. To embrace those concepts is to define ourselves based upon the views, by the way. Once you start to say there's heterosexual and homosexual, you're already defining ourselves or our culture on the view of a bigoted, patriarchal, heteronormative society. How do you like that? It's a mouthful, huh? Thus, there are moves to stop putting sex on birth certificates. Did you know that? There's a movement in the law now to stop putting sex on birth certificates because those kind of labels trap children into a fantasy social construct prior to them being able to make a choice. And you think that sounds insane, but folks, we have state legislators moving on it right now. It'll pass eventually. And children, by the way, need to be protected from bigoted parents like you. And they will use the instrument of government to bring that about. We've lost this battle. And if you don't believe that, then you didn't watch. You didn't just spend the last two weeks watching both major parties celebrate and give standing ovations, both parties, to the victory of LGBTQ rights. You didn't watch it. You haven't paid attention to the incredible speed of change on the transgenderism front. It's incredible. In 2005, I was sued by the ACLU. It probably didn't surprise any of you, but they sued me. Um, I was in an, in an, in an all-day deposition with a whole slew of attorneys from the Bay Area, from the ACLU, who were questioning me all day long. And in the deposition, I remember distinctly in 05 them asking me this question that kind of threw me for a loop. If a boy felt like a girl and wanted to use a girl's restroom, would you allow it as a board member? That's 2005. I mean, that sounded ridiculous. I, I laughed. I actually said to them, have you guys met teenage boys? What do you mean? If you just say, hey, if you like a girl, you can go in the girl's shower. You, you know what's going to happen? Are you guys insane? And they looked at me and said, it's going to be law. It's going to be law. Get ready for it. 2005. Remember, in 2008, we passed a law in California, a constitutional amendment against homosexual marriage. But in 2005, they're telling me this is going to be law that we see now. A mere decade later, that is law in our state. It is sweeping across the nation at all levels of cultural power. And, and it's being used to further this agenda. And by the way, both political parties are led by presidential candidates who have verbally expressed support for the transgender ag agenda. Both. And all this leaves you to ask the question, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And by the way, all this sexual freedom only obtains for the children we let live. Because you have a nearly unmitigated and much celebrated right to murder your children in utero. 
A woman announced her choice to have an abortion at the Democratic National Convention last week, and she got a standing ovation for it. Thousands of our nation's influencers and leaders stood and cheered abortion. Over 55 million babies have been aborted in our country since 1973 at the Roe v. Wade decision. Think of that. That's more than Stalin killed in Russia. It's more than Hitler killed. And we must ask, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Whether it's freedom of religion, freedom of speech, the right to bear arms, due process, the government seems almost hell-bent on infringing those rights. Further, our culture seems to have cho chosen the most immoral possible leaders we can find. We have 400 million plus people, and we've narrowed our choices down to those two? Is that the best we got? I mean, seriously, come on. One seems to be a dishonest criminal, and the other a sinless adulterer and owner of a strip club. He's the moral Christian choice. He objectifies women and puts money in his pocket doing it sexually, and he's the moral Christian choice. And honestly, honest, good Christians are having the ethical debate internally, do I vote for him because he's actually seems better than the alternative? That's how bad it is. Listen, you have freedom of conscience to vote as your conscience dictates. I'm not going to tell you how you ought to vote, but I will tell you this, you better know you have no good choices, whichever way you choose to go. And we have to ask the question, when the foundation is destroyed, what can the righteous do? Young adults are abandoning the church in droves after high school. They put the number somewhere near 85%. Rejecting a faith they were likely never taught well in the first place because their church was too busy entertaining them. And professing adult Christians aren't any better. Searching for a church which entertains them and tickles their ears, or at least entertains their children. And many pastors are content with teaching all manner of error as long as it's what people want and what will bring them in. Much of the church seems hopelessly adrift in producing, producing a baptized version of what the, what's happening in the world. The Bible is not well known or understood, even by those, many of those who claim to teach others. They fear their folks will be too bored by the Bible, which says a lot more about them than it probably does about their folks. And when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? California is about to utterly destroy Christian higher education. You realize that? SB 1146 is going to the assembly, will likely pass, will likely be signed by the governor, and will effectively end Christian higher education. I know at the master's college, they're telling the students, load up as many as you, units as you can, as fast as you can, so you can get as much done as you can before we have to close the college down. And there's barely a whimper about it. Sure, a few Christians are angry on Facebook. That's about it. 
Mark my words, they will soon come for the accreditation of Christian private schools, the tax exemptions of churches, and they will try to stop folks from homeschooling because they will need to save your children from you. And if you think that all sounds a bit extreme, then take yourself back to the 1990s and ask whether you would have believed we'd be here by 2016. And in the face of this natural, national, cultural, and judicial depravity, we must ask, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Where do we flee and find refuge? The enemies of God have their bows bent. The arrow is pointed at your hearts and, most specifically, at the hearts of your children. You will face persecution. I don't think it's likely you're going to face physical persecution anytime soon, but you will face social ridicule and economic harm. You'll have to make expensive decisions about the education of your children and ethical decisions that may cost you your job. The 20th century pastor James Montgomery Boyce, who did not live to the day to see where we're at now, asked this question. This is prior to the rise of the LGBTQ agenda in national law. But he asked this in the 90s. What shall we do when the laws are not upheld, when morality is undermined and evil sweeps on unchecked? What shall we do when the Bible is undermined and its teachings disregarded, when even churchmen seem to support the rising tide of secularism? What shall we do when family values are crumbling and the tide of frequent divorce sweeps forward with increasing damage to children, parents, and society alike? What can we do when everything around us seems to be giving way? See, that's really the question, isn't it? Where is our refuge? And the temptation, folks, I want you to hear this, the temptation is to find our refuge in idols. If we just elect the right candidates, then if we just get the right Supreme Court decisions, then if we just get the right political parties in power or the right presidential candidate, if we just get the right, our children, the right education or keep them from the wrong influences, if we just program our family life the right way, if our church could just find the right way to woo the culture into liking us, Now, whether these idols or others, we all struggle with some form of idolatry in the face of this, don't we? My tendency, as with yours, is to look for an idolatrous refuge, something I can see and, and taste and touch. I want to flee like a, mountain to the like a bird to the mountain or, or at least to Texas, <laughs> right? I, 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 I'm, I'm sitting around going, gosh, what happened to the good old days when there was, there was open land we could go and colonize and move away from an oppressive nation? What happened? It's all gone now. You know, so where do I, do we colonize the moon? What do we do? What's David's response? The Lord is my refuge. The Lord is my refuge. What is it about the Lord that made him such a sure refuge from the storms of life, from the storms of a wicked nation and enemies who were pursuing hotly after him. I want to argue that David found the Lord to be a sure refuge, a hiding place, his great hope for two reasons. One, the Lord's office. It's 
going to be the first reason. Verses 4 through 6, the Lord's office. In other words, the authority he holds. And two, the Lord's character, who he is. Who he is, verse 7. is. So let's look first at the Lord's office or, or the authority he holds in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4 of Psalm 11, the Lord The Lord, by the way, that word, when it's all capitalized like that, is a reference to the covenant name of God. The covenant Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. The Lord, the covenant Lord, who said, I will be God to you and your children after you, and you will be my people. The Lord who is the great I am, who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. The Lord who was and is and is to come. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The Lord who Isaiah, in a time of national trouble, when King Uzziah died, looks and sees the Lord seated on his throne. That Lord who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. The Lord who fills the earth with his glory. The Lord is in his holy temple. He's dwelling there. And look what he says next. The Lord is in his, is in heaven. The Lord's throne, sorry, is in heaven. He's on his throne. The Lord, the Holy One, is in heaven and he is king. The Puritan pastor, Matthew Henry, said this. Let us by faith see God on his throne. On his throne of glory, infinitely transcending the splendor and majesty of earthly princes. On his throne of government, giving law, giving motion, and giving aim to all creatures. On his throne of judgment, rendering to every man according to his works. And on his throne of grace, to which his people may come boldly for mercy and grace. We shall then see no reason to be discouraged by the pride and power of oppressors or any of the afflictions that attend the righteous if we just see the Lord on his throne. And doesn't that give you great comfort? The Lord is God. He is in his temple. He is on his throne. His governance is over all. He is divinely, exhaustively, meticulously ruling over every moment and every detail, no matter how small or mundane they might seem. No matter how confusing and out of control things might seem, he is in control. And the early church knew this. And they were in a much rougher scenario than any of us. You think it's bad now. Go see what it was like for the early church. But they understood that the Lord was sovereign on his throne in his temple. Look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse 23, you know this scene, Peter has been preaching the gospel, and Peter has been told by the council that he needs to stop, he needs to cease and desist preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The disciples need to stop, they were commanded by law to no longer preach the gospel, but they refused. They were threatened, etc. But look what it says in verse 23. When they were released, they're in prison for preaching the gospel. Acts 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, I want you to catch that. 
I go to prison for preaching the gospel. Maybe John and Jason go with me. There we are. Okay? We get released. We come back for our next congregational meeting and report. The government said, don't talk about Jesus anymore, or you're going to go to prison. You're going to get beaten. You may get killed. What's our response as a church? Is it theirs? How did they respond? And when they heard it, they lifted their voice to, voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. By the way, that's intentionally redundant. If you say Lord, he's already sovereign, isn't he? Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You're the creator of all of it. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, quoting from Psalm 2, which Jason told you is one of the keys to understanding the Psalter. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Notice that. What did the enemies of God do? Only what God's hand and God's plan predestined to take place. Because he is the sovereign Lord. He is the creator of all things. They are only doing what he said they would do in his word. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They nearly break out in song and prayer. And they sing about who their God is. And they go about preaching the word. We must be reminded that nothing escapes the sovereign, the Lord, sovereign Lord's decree. Nothing escapes his rule. Nothing escapes his notice. In fact, he sees everything. His eyes are looking intently. Look at Psalm 11.4 and the third part of it. He says, the Lord is holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Now look, his eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. What's it talk about? His eyelids, it's, it's a euphemism for the idea that he's, he's like squinting to focus in. You guys ever do that? You want to look at something really closely, and there's all these distractions, so you kind of you just squint to just focus in on that one thing. And that's what he says. The Lord sees everything. His eyes see. His eyelids are testing the children of man. You know what? The Lord is looking so intently on our situation. So intently. When I sat in that board meeting and watched other board members vote, when I get the calls and the emails and the accusations, the Lord knows. He's looking intently. He's looking right through me, and he's looking right through them. He's not missing a detail. None. Nothing escapes his notice. And he not only sees actions and attitudes, folks, he sees through the person to their heart. It's one of the reasons I don't have to see their motives and speculate on their motives. The Lord sees them. 
He knows. Does that not comfort the people of God? See, you might, not, might be discouraged by how we've reached a point where our nation trusts the wicked and despises the righteous. Where injustice seems to prevail in our land, where righteous people are called bigots and haters, while wicked people are extolled as virtuous and loving, where evil is called good and good is called evil. The whole world is upside down, isn't it? Yet remember, the Lord is the holy king and he sees everything. In fact, he is intently watching, gazing right through the whole thing to the truth. Listen, your name may not be slandered yet. I don't know if your name is being slandered for the sake of Christ and and his word yet, but it will be. You may not hear your name being gossiped about and unjustly despised, but when you do, when you do, and when you see so-called Christians joining in the destruction of your name, trust me, it happens. It's happened to me a ton. And when you hear how they claim to really know you, though you've never even heard of them, and when you hear how people are believing their fabricated stories about you, you may then realize what a comfort it is to know that the Lord is the Holy King and He sees And he's looking right through the whole situation to the truth. I mean, when you go through it, guys, you're going to come back. By the way, if you're ever having your name slandered, you better come back to the fact the Lord sees and Jesus, Jesus is taking care of my reputation. All I need to be concerned with is his. Look at verse 5a. The Lord, first part of verse 5, sorry. You're like, for 5a, what is that? The first phrase in verse 5. What's he doing about what he sees? Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous. He is, if you will, if you will, sanctifying the righteous, refining his people, maturing his children. He's growing them in holiness through trials. That's what it means. But look at the second part of verse 5 and through verse 6. But his soul abhors or hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. This is referring you back to Genesis 19 and Sodom and Gomorrah. Where the Lord's judgment will come upon the wicked. He is justly judging and condemning the wicked. Listen, you need to get this straight. The Lord hates the wicked and will execute justice. No, the Lord just hates their sin. But here's the thing. The Lord doesn't send their sin to hell. He sends them there. He hates the wicked and their sin. Stop participating in the evangelical tendency to somehow divide yourself from your sin. You or the actor in your sin. You, that, I'm sure, brought up all kinds of questions I'll get to. He will destroy the wicked in a manner akin to Sodom. He will cause them to drink from the cup of his wrath to the dregs. They may be hiding in the shadows of night, bending their bows and pointing their fiery arrows at our hearts, 
but he is in the light with his, bent, his bow bent toward theirs. Did not Jesus say, don't fear those who can kill the body, but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can cast body and soul into hell. Here's the question, though. But how can I be considered righteous when I'm a sinner? Am I not one of those who in my natural born state is an enemy of God whom his soul hates? Yes, that's the answer. Yes, is that encouraging? Yes, God hated you at birth, and he loved you. Now, if you want to try to work that out, great. Makes my mind go, I don't know how he loves me and hates me at the same time. I kind of get a taste of it the older my kids get, right? You know, no, no offense, children. I love you guys. But occasionally, <laughs> occasionally, they push me to the edge. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. And I, I kind of get a taste of it, but mine is all mixed up with sin. God has no sin. So how he loves and hates at the same time, I don't even want to try to unwind for you. I just want to tell you the Bible says he does both. He both hates his enemies and he loves his enemies. So you're a sinner in your natural state, an enemy of God who justly deserves his wrath, just like other men, right? Yes. Yes. Doesn't God rightly hate all sinners? And was I not born as a sinner too? Yes. So how can I be considered righteous? How am I a part of the beloved of God? That's where we brought, we're brought to Jesus. The Father, out of his great love for us, his enemies. You hear that language? But God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. The Father, out of his great love for us, sent his Son, Jesus. Jesus is the righteous man who puts the wicked to flight. He is the one who is innocent, holy, and undefiled, yet he went to the cross and drank the cup of God's wrath for us. He drank it to the dregs in our place. He conquered sin and death in his resurrection, and he was vindicated as holy and righteous and innocent before all. And when you trust in him, you are united to him by the Holy Spirit. You hear that? The Holy Spirit unites you to him. You're born again forgiven, declared righteous in him, and caused by the Spirit to walk in holiness. He, Jesus, accomplished your salvation. It is by the Spirit and through faith that you're united to him and declared righteous and adopted as sons. That, that's the glory of this. Oh, what manner of love is this, that we are called children of God, and so we are. God loved his enemies. Is that not good news for you? What had you done to deserve any of it? But he loves you. He loves you enough to send his son for you. To save you. Yeah, you, you still wrestle with sin. But you're now called a saint. A child of the Father, you're his people. 
You were once not his people, but now you are his people. You had once not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And now you walk as righteous, set apart as God's people for God's purposes. So the Lord is your covenant God, your holy king, your savior and deliverer. This is his office, and you flee there and find refuge. Please know this. We are those looking for refuge now as the wicked prosper, but it will not always be so. Eventually, the wicked will look for refuge when Jesus returns. And blessed will be all those who take refuge in him. Is that not what Psalm 2 tells us? So find your refuge in the Son. He is the King. The Lord's office, His holy and sovereign ruling Son, that's our refuge. Now let's look at the Lord's character. That was the Lord's office. We'll try to look at the Lord's character quickly. Verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. It's just a statement about His character. He's just. He's good. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. I mean, I don't know if you hear that. The Lord is righteous. He's good. He's morally upright and just. He rewards the righteous. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, then that's you. You're the righteous in Christ, not in and of yourselves. In and of yourselves, there is no one righteous, no, not one. But in Christ, you are the righteous. And he reward you. He must reward you because he is righteous. Have you ever considered 1 John 1, 9? You know, if, speaking to believers, if we confess our sins, homo legeo, to say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. Like, we don't like to do that because it's kind of harsh, right? But if, you can, if we confess our sins, he is, interesting phrase, he, speaking of the Lord, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You have to stop and ask the question, how is it justice to forgive sins and cleanse of unrighteousness? Is that not the suspension of justice? In one sense, it is. Is not forgiveness the withholding or suspension of justice? Yes, it is. In and of itself, that's exactly what it is, isn't it? Yet John says God is just to forgive you. So how can he say that? How can a righteous God forgive and reward the unrighteous and sinners? We are not righteous in and of ourselves. In ourselves, we're wicked sinners. We are righteous in Christ. That's how. Here's the thing. God is just in forgiving us because Jesus, the truly just one, already paid for our sins. And there's no double jeopardy. Therefore, God's own justice requires that he forgive all those who look to Christ. And not only does his righteousness require that he forgive you, but that he reward you, for he will reward his son and you're united to him. That's how you can be an heir of all things with Christ. And he sees and he knows, listen, he sees and he knows the work you're doing. Because any work that you are doing that honors him is work that you're doing by the power of the Holy Spirit working through you. And he will reward those righteous deeds. 
Apart from Christ, all your works are filthy rags. But when you're in Christ by faith, your works are holy and acceptable to God. And God rejoices in and delights over you. He sings over you and loves you. And he will reward you with his presence forever. Moses wanted to see God's face, didn't he? And he was told he couldn't unless he, lest he would die. But if you trust in Christ, you will see God's face. That's one of the reasons why Jesus can say, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the reward of the righteous, isn't it? To see him in all his glory. This is the good news as we see the foundations destroyed. This is your hope as your enemies, the enemies of God, assail you. This is why blessed are those who take refuge in the sun. The good news is not found in a political party or a political candidate who will turn things around. The good news is not found in a Supreme Court decision that seems to help. The good news is not found in big bank accounts or retirement plans or health care or the right schooling option. The good news is not found in a good job or a good marriage or good children. The good news is Jesus Christ. Church, we need to remember that Jesus has long been a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Jesus is building his church, his holy temple, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you believe that? The famous church historian Philip Schaff, or Schaff, I don't know how he pronounce his name, reminds of this. Listen to what he said about the church throughout history. Christianity has thus passed through many stages of its earthly life and yet has hardly reached the period of full manhood in Christ Jesus. During the long succession of centuries, it has outlived the destruction of Jerusalem, the dissolution of the Roman Empire, fierce persecutions from without, and heretical corruptions from within. The barbarian invasion, the confusion of the Dark Ages, the papal tyranny, the shock of infidelity, the ravages of revolution, the attacks of enemies and the errors, errors of friends, the rise and fall of proud kingdoms, empires, and republics, philosophical systems and social organizations without number, and behold, the church still lives and lives with greater strength and wider extent than ever, controlling the progress of civilization and the destinies of the world, marching over the ruins of human wisdom and folly ever forward and onward, spreading silently its heavenly blessings from, blessings from generation to generation and from country to country to the ends of the earth. It can never die. It will never see the decrepitude of old age. But like its divine founder, it will live in the unfading freshness of self-renewing youth and the unbroken vigor of manhood to the end of time and will outlive time itself. Single denominations and sects, human forms of doctrine, government, and worship, after having served their purpose, may disappear and go the way of all flesh. But the church universal of Christ in her divine life and substance is too strong for the gates of hell. She will only exchange her earthly garments for the festal dress of the Lamb's bride and rise from the state of humiliation to the state of exaltation and glory. Then at the coming of Christ, she will reap the final harvest of history, and the church triumphant in heaven, celebrate and enjoy the eternal rest of holiness and peace. 
this will be the endless end of history as it was foreshadowed already at the beginning of its course in the holy rest of God after he completed the work of his creation. Be encouraged. I know I may sound, I know I may sound temporally somewhat pessimistic, but I'm eternally optimistic. The Lord is on the march as the gospel spreads across the earth. The church, the temple of God, is growing as it has always done, whether there is peace or persecution. So be encouraged, for the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your word would be burned deeply into our hearts by your spirit, that we would know that your son is our refuge, our ever-present help, that we would look to him as a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls, that we would know that he is on his throne and he sees everything and he is good and he will judge the wicked and he will reward the righteous. Father, we are thankful that your son is himself the righteous one to whom we're united through faith by your spirit. And so we're rewarded in him, forgiven in him, not because of anything we've done, but because of your great love for us in sending your son and the great accomplishment that he has put to your eternal plan and the application that your Holy Spirit has made of that to our lives through faith. We pray that we would find great joy in him. In Jesus' name, amen.